Hi everyone and welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. We're now embarking on a non-stop return journey to the main entrance and parking area. During the trip, we ask that you remain seated at all times and no smoking, please. If you had wings, if you had wings, if you had wings, had wings, had wings, had wings. Don't tell him, Carlos. Don't be chicken. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, esteemed guests, and those of you who hate the funny animal hands, welcome! WDW Radio, your information station. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 113 for the week of April 5th, 2009. Thank you for tuning in once again. This week's show is going to be the last one that I'm broadcasting from the WDW Radio Studios in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. I am taking the show permanently on the road to sunny skies and warmer climates in Florida. But this week, I have something that I think you're going to enjoy because we're going to don our Explorer's hat and magnifying glass and do another DSI Disney Scene Investigation of one of Epcot Center's original and most important pavilions, the land. We'll explore its beginnings, history, and changes through the years, as well as its signature attractions. There's just one segment this week because I'm in the middle of making my move, but stay tuned to the end of the show because I'll play more of your voicemails, have another announcement about the Everest Adventurers Club weekend, and much more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. Just make believe You're a tiny little seed A tiny little seed that's reaching up To meet your need With the right amount of faith And the right amount of earth You'll grow to see the sun shine On your day of birth Let's listen to the land we all love Nature's plan will shine upon Listen to the land If you think back to the origins of Epcot Center and what pavilions early on were most representative of what the goal and message of Disney's first non-Magic Kingdom theme park might be, you might immediately think of something like the iconic Spaceship Earth or the goal of connecting people from all over the world in Communicore or maybe even the endless possibilities that imagination brings to all of us. But if you were to go back and ask the Imagineers that worked on Epcot Center, they might have told you at the time that the most significant and challenging, entertaining, educational, and important pavilion in the park was actually the land. So this week, I wanted to take a closer look at the land and its beginnings, its history, and its changes through the years, as well, of course, as its signature attractions. And joining me this week is a man who uh, helped me go under the sea and look at the Seas Pavilion a few weeks ago, so it's only fitting that he joins me to listen to the land, and that's Ryan Wilson from the Main Street Gazette. Ryan, welcome back, buddy. It's good to be here. So I I said during the intro that the designers and the artists and the Imagineers 
they all felt that the land pavilion of all the ones in Future World was the closest to the philosophy and the purpose and what their image of what Epcot was meant to be because of how it examines mankind's relationship um, with the Earth itself. I mean, is that something that, that seems to make sense to you? Absolutely. I mean, I know I've read some interviews where they were just, it bordered on giddy of how passionate they were about this pavilion and how it had so many different mediums to communicate their goals and such an important goal to the public as a whole. Exactly. And you're right. And the Imagineers are talking about it, talk about it so very passionately. Uh, I've, I've, I've seen interviews with Rolly Crump. And I think for them and for us as guests is it was so much more than just a passive show uh, or an attraction because you couldn't just experience it by looking at it. But here you're actually able to go and you could touch it and you can go backstage. You can and this is not meant to be the food reference, but you could actually taste it because you can sort of you know, enjoy the bounty of what they were doing there by eating the, the fruits and vegetables that they were that they were growing. Exactly. And it's one of these pavilions where, like you said, from the outside, you can't really get a full grasp on what you're looking at. You have a glimpse into what it's going to be. But once you get inside, you can. You can touch it. You can smell it. You can taste it. You can see it. It just it would overwhelm your senses with everything that they were trying to give you. And it's interesting how the land pavilion actually came to be because early on, you know, a pavilion was planned for to be put next to journey into imagination, uh, which originally was supposed to be an ecology pavilion journey. And I think we talked about this when we did the journey into imagination segment, that was going to be an ecology pavilion. And instead of the land pavilion, it was going to be about forests. And you see, you sort of got a, a very, very small sampling of what it might've been about in the forests for our future exhibit and interventions. Um, but the land pavilion originally in design, in concept, and in, in sort of goal and message was going to be very, very, very different. Right. It was, you know, really the whole conservation message was taken off the table and it was very specifically tailored to just the ecological movement. And even the, the design of the building and the shape of the building changed um, from what it is now. We'll talk about the design a little bit. But early on, it was actually going to be shaped like a long grouping of crystals, you know, if you think of sort of long pieces of crystal sort of jutting out with all these separate little biodomes or biomes in there. And like the journey into imagination um, pyramids, you'd be able to completely see through these. A very, very thin skeleton, but mostly glass panes of all different shapes, shapes and sizes. And this, this greenhouse w- was going to showcase ecology and, and food cultivation and production in the 21st century, um, and, and one of the really early concepts that Imagineers realized for Epcot Center. Right, and like you said with these biomes, you know, it's very reminiscent of what you would get into later. It's clear that that idea kind of switched when you went to the boat attraction, but the outside was supposed to be very see-through, very you know, open, and give you that view back and forth of the world around you. And... I get very excited when I look back and I hear and I read about what this may have been. And I love the land pavilion. We'll talk about it. I mean, I, I'm a listen to the land kind of guy. I'm not going to break out in song just yet. But they would have had this one very, very tall dome or, or crystal structure that would have resembled a forest and was going to have a very tall observation deck shaped like a tree that you'd be able to go up and look down on the rest of, of the pavilion. There was also going to be a hot air balloon ride in there. There was going to be a rainforest biome. 
there was going to be a journey through the Earth's crust that we would actually ride aboard a drilling machine. I mean, that is something that sounds very, very, very exciting. Absolutely. All of these elements just, it gave you a really, really good feel of, you know, helping the Earth, but still you had all the exciting adventures to take. And it's one of those things where you're right, when you look at it, you're like, that's mind-blowing. I wish we could have seen something like that. Right. I mean, you're going from the rainforest to the center of the Earth to the Arctic zone, um, all in this one pavilion. And the guys who worked on it, I mean, their names that you know, so you can imagine what this was going to be. Again, Roly Crump and Jeff Burke, they worked on the project together early on. Uh, Tony Baxter was very, very early uh, in on the concept. Um, Claude Coates was eventually put in charge of the, of, of the project. Although there were actually a lot of people at WED that, that doubted, you know, it looked great on paper, but they were sort of skeptical as to, well, uh, whether or not they were going to be able to pull this off. But again, Raleigh was, was, was very, very passionate, very much believed that this was an important pavilion and was very representative of all of, of, all, of all the Epcot pavilions of the message of Epcot. Absolutely, because it was definitely looking towards the future and what we had now and what we needed to do for the future. And like we said with the design, it's very reminiscent of the imagination pyramids we have now, and it would have carried that theme on. You can definitely see that there were similar personalities working on these projects. Absolutely. But we've talked in the past um, about specifically Epcot Center, how important corporate involvement was. The only way these pavilions were going to get built, remember, we're talking about a billion-dollar theme park here, the only way they were going to be built was with corporate sponsorships, who would, who would split the cost, basically, the $60 million cost of a pavilion with Disney. Um, and that's why each one, for the most part, had a sponsor. And the initial sponsor for the land pavilion was Kraft, Kraft Foods. So, obviously, they were going to want to shift in the focus because they wanted, obviously, something to talk about food in some way, shape, or form. So a lot of things changed very quickly. The design of the building changed. Uh, The glass dome, to a certain degree, remains. But some of the other themes carry through. Um, But there was a huge shift from what we got, what we had originally, to what they started working on and what we ended up getting. Absolutely. Because like you said, Kraft really would want something that based on nutrition and the message they wanted to send about food and the taste element rather than the protecting the environment element. And one of the things I love about this, and I love about all of a future world specifically, and I love sort of the distinction between and the lines between future world west and future world east and, and how things here are a little more flowing, is looking at the building and looking at the entire area, how it's representative of the earth. You see the mountain volcano. You can see the hillsides. You see the greenhouse. I mean, first of all, it's a huge, it's actually the biggest pavilion. It's six acres inside. It's two and a half million square feet. Uh, But there is a lot of symbolism in the exterior and the interior, but specifically the exterior, a lot of symbolism in the design. It definitely is, because really, if you're looking at it straight on, it doesn't look like a massive pavilion. It looks like you're walking up an incline into a a smaller pavilion and the fact is with the six acres you could basically fit fantasy land inside of the land pavilion but it was that earth shelter kind of structure where everything was in the ground and part of the environment around it and you get that and i, th- and I think unfortunately this gets lost on so many guests who are just bolting at 901 to get to soren but the exterior is actually designed to convey that symbols it's meant to represent 
the layers of the earth. And if you look at those dual uh, mirrored murals on either side made up of 150,000 individual tiles, look carefully and you'll see that it represents the soil of the earth. All the different colors and the tile and the glass and the marble represent the different layers of the earth's crust as you sort of get inside the pavilion. And you can, if you really look closely, I mean, you can see like the, the blues of the, you know, of where the water is coming to the land and all the different layers. And at some point you can almost see bits and pieces of civilizations that were there and now they're buried. And it's extraordinary to just take a few minutes and actually just study that mural. Exactly. And I know, like me, one of your favorite little bits of trivia is that the two sides of the mural, and I'm going to put an asterisk on this because it's a little, it has changed a little bit, are exactly alike. They are supposedly identical except for one small, tiny, emerald green tile on the right-hand side placed there by one of the artists representing their birthstone as sort of their little signature on the because they couldn't, they couldn't sign the piece, so that was their signature, was that little green emerald. You're right. A way to, a way to say that, hey, we were here, this is what we did, and it, it's the only difference. And I've taken pictures back and forth, and like you said, there's a few things now, but when they were constructed, that was it. Yeah, and, and boy, huge nerd alert right here. It, it Things have changed, because over time, um, some of the tiles had to be replaced, and they're not exactly mirror images of each other. So I know that there's one little area on the right-hand side where there right. should be ten tiles, and now there's only six, and, and I, this is where people start saying, you know what, Lou, just go ride Soren. <laughs> stop staring at the tiles and go ride Soren. This was when the like, stop reading, stop looking at pictures, and, and get some sleep. <laughs> Can you get out of my way, please? We're trying to get uh, our stroller inside, so... I already have escalators and stairs to deal with to get to the ride. You're not going to be in my way. Exactly. <laughs> so, But especially when the pavilion first opened, um, that earthiness and those earth tones carried right through inside. The colors were very sort of uh, neutral and, and earthy. Um, again, it was 1982. So, But even inside, too, there was a lot of symbolism um, in, in what the Imaginers put in there. And first and foremost were the four balloons that were in the center. And there's, there's been a lot of discussion and, and debate as to what those balloons have represented. And that's actually changed over the years because initially, when the pavilion first opened, uh, it was not the four seasons, but those were the four food groups. And R- Rolly Crump talks about that, um, the four sort of smaller balloons surrounding that Mother Earth, that center balloon, represented the food groups as opposed to anything else. Right, and that was almost a combination of the original element, like we talked about with the hot air balloon ride, and the message Kraft wanted to convey about food. And they put it all together, and you got these balloons that were really what you're drawn to the minute you walk through those doors. Yeah, and they're beautiful, and they were beautiful, and they moved up and down, and it was it was a great sort of uh, visual magnet, you know, to the center, and then you sort of look down uh, on this expansive area below. But the the design of the balloons actually changed over the years and actually uh, during a refurbishment uh, Michael Eisner sort of was very much hands-on in this and the theme and the look changed from the four food groups actually we don't use the four food groups anymore anyway to sort of four suns and the seasons and the colors of the balloon now reflect that and you'll see that they sort of reflect you know winter summer spring and fall Um, and if you look at now the tops of the umbrellas they all contain suns on the umbrellas as opposed to just the different colors that they were. Um, and the large balloon in the center, now a little bit more representative of 
work with me. The the cultures the, of the world. And, yeah, the, and the people of the world, right. right. And the rain that sort of falls from this balloon symbolizes the many nations nourishing the earth. I know this sounds <laughs> a little trippy, but it goes right into the fountain below. Right. And you had, you know, the, the snowflakes and the leaves and all those various elements to show you the seasons and to give you that connecting feel of we all have four seasons, you know, and if you want to take it hippie even one more notch, you know, in our lives and, you know, in the year. So, yeah, I don't even know what season I am in my life at this point. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, we're, we're Disney people. We're eternally in, you know, our spring. Exactly. That's right. Spring better than summer. Summer a little hot. So uh, the land was uh, it was an opening day attraction. It did open up on, on October 1st and it opened up with three attractions uh kitchen cabaret symbiosis and the signature attraction was listen to the land and maybe this is where we should sort of talk about each of those individually and again i'm a big listen to the land guy i loved um the song and this as you know you've probably been on it is a a very simple boat ride through different habitats but the important thing here and the important thing about this pavilion and this is why i think they felt that they were so passionate about it is that it wasn't just taking you through a show, it was taking you through real working labs. And it was using the, the, the early part and the animatronics, not just to tell the story of the land and its effects on the population, but by having these really, the, the, the working labs in there as well, really set the tone for this whole edutainment concept. Right. You had things like the Environmental Research Laboratory at University of Arizona, the USDA, NASA, all partnering to really study the future of agriculture and where we needed to go. And that's exactly and that was the tagline. The tagline on the original attraction was set sail for tomorrow's harvest. And it sort of took you through a progression. We'll go scene by scene. But it was sort of grounded and began at the University of Arizona, where, and they consulted on really the second half of the attraction through the greenhouses, uh, there was somewhere by the name of Carl Hodges, who had this sort of echo lab in Arizona, and they formed this relationship with Disney, and uh, and what was originally supposed to be temporary structures ended up being incorporated into the attraction, obviously very much an important part of it, um, and it's a very long attraction, too, if you think, it's 1,600 feet, um, it is not a short ride by any stretch of the imagination. No, you're in those boats for a good while. Yeah, and let's kind of go through it really scene by scene. Um, obviously, start off in, in the loading area. And originally, when the attraction first opened, one of the most memorable, at least for me as a kid going to see it, was that first scene, and that was called Symphony of the Seed. And this is where you first heard my man singing Listen to the Land. But it was it was very interesting because you didn't see real plants and real trees. Here you saw these very large plastic see-through plants with lights that sort of went through them uh, trying to get across the message right away that you know life on earth is based on the miracle of plants and plants life and how important they are to us and there's all sort of projected images of, of seeds germinating and flat, uh, plants growing and flowers blooming throughout the scene and to really get a scope I mean these were giant plants that you saw growing this wasn't like there was a little plastic flower off on your side i mean they were you know the, the size of people in diameter sometimes just covering this and while you're hearing the music and seeing the lights and seeing the germination and all these images it really was getting this powerful message of you know this is part of our planet right then 
Yeah, it tried to give you, I think, by size and scale of, of just how important they really were. It was a sort of a, a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, movie set um, size thing. I mean, again, to give you an idea, because it's very different than what we have. And and there were no real plants, no real plants in there at all, which which I thought was somewhat interesting. Um, but from there, you move into basically three different ecological communities, the rainforest, the desert, and the prairie. And in the rainforest... It rained and rained and rained. And actually, that's why there's canopies on the boats. Exactly. And they had monkeys and they had butterflies and all these different animals that would go off as your boat passed through, almost like you would surprise the animals. Uh, it was just – and it did rain. That was the only reason you had the canopies on the boat was because the moisture was going to come in. Exactly. And they, and they wanted to give you – because it was very close and very dense, they wanted to give you a sense that the rainforest, you know, it's there – it's sort of their habitat, and they are somewhat impenetrable um, for the most part, we're, but we're making sort of inroads. And you go opposite end of the spectrum from there. You go from the rainforest into the desert. And I love this scene because this is one of the ones that you feel the heat and you smell the desert. <laughs> and I know, you know, again, work with me. If you've been through, you get that very dry, uh, no vegetation at all area. It is. It's, it's like a wall of heat that you hit as you make that turn. And, I mean, it's like a cottonmouth experience when you first get there. You can feel the wind almost. You can hear it. And it is. It's very, 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 very dry. And there's the one thing, it's a completely static environment. There's nothing moving there except in the distance you see the sand and sort of like this projected image uh, of the wind, you know, way in the back. And it just shows you how, how barren it is completely. And then from there, you move on to the prairie, um, and, and here you get some animatronics. You've got the bison, the gopher. I love the little uh, image all the way in the back. You can see some of the, um, the brush fires all the way in the back of the prairie. Right, and you can hear the, the locusts and the pests that are you know, on the horizon, that, you know, another challenge that, that the prairie is facing. Exactly, and that's the message, too, is that they're showing you that in all three of these areas— there is different dangers in each of these environments and different challenges that we have to face uh, with each of them. And then from here, you move into the farm scene, this turn-of-the-century farming scene. You see uh, Mr. Jones' old sort of Victorian house, and I, I love the detail here. It's a, it's a simple simple scene, but I love the detail with the chickens and the scarecrow and the, and the tire swing. And if you look up, you can actually see, we'll talk about the, uh, the Good Turn restaurant. You can see up into the restaurant where they can look down into the attraction. Right, and it sets the way for you to make your way into the next scene with the barn. But you're right, it's all the little details, like the, the chickens, the dog, the, the children's toys outside. It's, it's all there. It's a re- it almost feels like a family just up and walked away from the house. Exactly. And, and I love how the attraction takes you sort of into their barn to show you some of the, the projected images in the movies to see our relationship with nature and see the benefits that we get from nature, um, sort of inside inside the barn here. With the history of agriculture and farming and what we've developed over the years and what we gain back from it, and it's that very symbiotic relationship that gets discussed over and over again in the pavilion. And this is where I think it's brilliant because you go from talking about and seeing images of these things into the live, real working demonstrations that you actually get to see it in action in the tropic culture, the aquacell and in the desert um, culture. And the first place you go into is the tropics greenhouse. And you see rice and sugarcane and peanuts and bananas and, you know, 50 foot peach palms, you know, growing under this huge, you know, 60 foot high dome. 
they wanted to give you things like you know the cocoa yams and things that people at that time weren't familiar with. They didn't see these on a regular basis. And then they took it and they intercropped it, which was putting various crops together. And this was a new science that they were trying, seeing if these you know symbiotic plants could actually help each other, like beans and corn. And even so, going so far as doing things like integrated pest management. And these are, I mean, these are principles that Disney uses not just in the pavilion, but on property as well. And uh, it's amazing some of the things that they can do to, you know, cut down on waste and increase productivity and, cr- and increase the size of the crops themselves. Yeah, many of the plants were picked because of their ability to be produced on a smaller scale, but for abundant properties. And they did have the technologies, like we said, that were used property-wise, like the water hyacinth, which could be used for methane gas, which could be used for energy. And it was just all interweaving these principles that were not only in the pavilion, but property-wide. Exactly. And then from there, you go into the aquacell culture. And this is where you see different marine animals that are used for food. And there's also alligators and there's shrimp and catfish and the oh-so-delicious tilapia, uh, bass and eel, and how they're able to sort of grow and cultivate these these fish in a sustainable way uh, inside these little, in these cells. And it's one of these things where you get into the argument of, you know, having animals almost just raised for food, but it also helps in nature. Because like with the shrimp, in nature you get one quarter of 1% survive from their egg stage, but in the pavilion you're getting 50 to 70% survival rate. So it's a very, very thin balancing act. And I think one of the things that's always been most fascinating for me, and I think a lot of people, is the desert culture and how they're able to use things like drip irrigation and hydroponics. You know, hydroponics was something that years ago seemed to be this, this futuristic technology that they're actually putting into use and making it work. They, they, I mean, every drip and every drop of water that they use is, is reused and recycled uh, and really to take full advantage of it. And with the space uh, element, they were putting things you know, in condensed, you know, revolving drums to grow them and to see if they could develop things that for future space colonies and all the hydroponics and the nutrient sprays. And it was amazing. Right. And the thing that's that I think is very, very interesting about the land is that we not only see the theory behind it, we see the importance behind it, we see it in practical use. But the things that are grown here, the tomatoes and the peppers and the lettuce and all they're used right upstairs at the Garden Grill and some of the other restaurants throughout property. And they've done some amazing things, too, like the Mickey-shaped cucumbers. And the they have world record harvests of 32,000 pounds of, of tomatoes and this giant tomato tree, these golf ball-sized tomatoes, um, and, and really some of the incredible technology that they're able to use to harvest them and create cool things like Mickey-shaped pumpkins. And the size, and they have giant pumpkins. And it, you're right, it's you know a high yield from a very low resource element. And they put it in practice, and it's not just in the land now. It's everywhere because it works. And you go from here, again, you follow the progression where we talk about the origins and the, and the importance of the earth and our relationship with it and how technologies have grown. Now you look towards the future technology. So you move from this very sort of uncertain past into the present into the future, and the creative house shows different ways to grow these crops. And like you said early on, they're doing it not just on their own, but as Disney always does. And this is the brilliance of Disney. They bring in experts, and they bring in NASA to 
And if you remember, the um, they used to have the revolving drum display where they would uh, grow the lettuce to kind of give you the sense of um, the, the gravitational force. So if they were going to try and grow these things in space at some point in the future. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the, the spinning would push it out. It would get a sense of gravity, but it could still grow and flourish and not harm the plant. Exactly. And from there, you go through to the finale uh, and back to the unload area. Um, again, a couple of things I always found interesting about this was that other than the plants in the greenhouse, nothing else that you see early on in the attraction is real. All the plants are fake. And uh, much to people's joy, and, and it's so funny, we always joke about attractions that lead you out into a gift shop. Well, here we're talking about food, so rather than lead you out into a gift shop, we're going to lead you right into the food court. <laughs> Which by the time of you're finished looking at all those plants, you are feeling a little hungry. You're hungry, so. and you can eat the benefits of, of uh, listening to the land. So um, there were two other uh, attractions I wanted to touch on just briefly that were there when the pavilion opened. And the first was a movie called Symbiosis, um, which was a, a very academic, and you might want to translate that into somewhat boring, movie about the relationship that we have, the very delicate balance that we have, with the land, um, very much of a, of a history of ag- agriculture. It was, yeah, the mutual benefits, and they showed how people had made uh, accommodations to the environment and to work with the environment to flourish as a people and as a land. But you're right, it was definitely not on you know anybody's top 10 film list. No, and it was beautiful, and it was a visually stunning 70-millimeter film showing scenes from ancient times and contemporary times the, the scenery was spectacular and there was you know they went all around the world uh, to, to get film for this and there was a, a wonderful audio track but it didn't really have the interest or, or the impact and that's eventually why it reopens as circle of life and environmental fable again bringing in characters from the lion king uh, adding a sense of relevance a little bit more humor to it uh, making it a little more interesting, especially, especially for some of the younger guests, and, which I actually I, I like Circle of Life. I mean, it's not a must do every time I go, but I think it's a it's an overlooked um, film. It, it's definitely a good film. And like you were talking about, you know, the cinematic scope, the the beauty of symbiosis. Some of those scenes did get to carry over into the Circle of Life film, just speaking to the to the nature of how it was shot. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 right. The, the film was so visually beautiful that it was a, it was a shame to waste it. Um, and the cool thing, too, just from a, you know, an animation fan perspective, was the original voices of the characters in The Lion King actually came back and, uh, and voiced the, um, the characters in the film as well. Which is so rare when you see attractions nowadays, that you get the original people to come back and recreate those characters for you in a different setting. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and uh, the third one, which I'm just going to mention briefly because I did actually cover this uh, back on show 41. We did a, a whole segment on it. Was Kitchen Cabaret, and uh, this again was a, a Rolly Crump, a Jeff Burke, very very humorous look at food. Lots of whimsy for craft. This was their baby because this really incorporated craft as a sponsor. Got their message of nutrition across. Um, very sort of like a. a an art decoy cabaret musical review, but but very very fun and uh, and I, for me I, I, mean, I kind of like this a little bit more I think than Food Rocks which replaced it. This was a show that as a kid was my attraction. Like I had to come see this every time I could. I don't know if it was the back alley kind of entrance you went through, or just the the veggie veggie fruit fruit or the cereal sisters, <laughs> you know Miss Yogurt. I don't know what it was, but it was just it was it was definitely my favorite of the two shows they had in that space. See, I was hoping that you were going to break out into song there. 
because you know you now you have veggie veggie fruit you stuck in your mind and deep down you want to you want to break out into a verse but we'll say that for another show <laughs> so again I, just for more on that go back uh, I'll link it in the show notes but go back to show number 41 from November 18th of 07 and uh, we have a real detailed discussion on that but uh, there were also a couple of restaurants um, or a couple of dining locations in the pavilion. And the first one in the, sort of the signature restaurant, which is still there, was originally known as The Good Turn. And this was very unique because, as far as I know, it's the only revolving restaurant, certainly only revolving restaurant over an attraction um, in all of Disney World. And I love this. And I love the fact that you could look down from the restaurant into some of the show scenes. And they tried to make sure that you saw all the different show scenes as you were eating your meal. And they did their best to really make a muted palette for the decor of the restaurant so that you were focusing in on these scenes before you. Exactly. They kind of they wanted to sort of give you this a family style restaurant, um, almost sort of tying into the to the farmhouse style atmosphere. But they wanted you to focus on what you were doing. And here's a little did you know, Do you know, it actually revolves faster at breakfast than at dinner because people spend more time eating dinner and they want everybody to be able to experience um, all the different scenes, like you said, in the attraction. You know, I did know that it rotated at different speeds. I didn't know that it was breakfast and dinner that did that, but that's interesting. I eat fast at both, so it wouldn't make a difference for me. <laughs> so um, the name actually changed back in May of 1986. It changed to the Land Grill Room, and currently it's known as the Garden Grill. and actually has uh, character meals there, and you'll get Mickey, Chippendale, and Pluto. Again, sort of Farmer Mickey and, and Farmer Chippendale um, in there, uh, again, kind of carrying that whole farmhouse theme across. Yeah, and it's really interesting. The the restaurant itself almost doesn't allow for conversations at your table because you're sitting basically on a bench so that you can see the world beyond. And so it's it, it tough to talk to people at the other end of your table. Of course, you're focusing on food and the buffalo in front of you. So, you know, it's fine. Right. <laughs> uh, and the other part of, and really what makes up the entire space of, of the first floor, remember this is a, a two-floor pavilion, was originally known as the Farmer's Market up until 1993. And like a real Farmer's Market, it was arranged into different stands that had that sold different types of food. So you'll find one stand that sold baked goods, another one that had some really good barbecue, pizza, uh, a cheese stand. Obviously, remember Kraft, the, the cheese company is a sponsor. Ice cream, potatoes. They used to sell the old hamwiches and soup and salads. And uh, I remember distinctly the uh, over the sign, there was the rooster that would crow according to um, according to the clock he was standing on. Right, he would he would turn sideways, come out and crow, and then go back in. And it was you know one of those things, just a little touch that added to the feeling of you were in this farmer's market. Yeah, very very well themed. Um, I really liked it. Um, I thought the food was good, but it then changed to more of a food court type atmosphere. What we have now, which is a Sunshine Seasons food fair. And the menu items changed very much as well. Now you have an Asian area that has a lot of noodle bowls, good stir fry. Really like the really like the Asian area. Uh, sandwiches, soup and salad, wood fire grill that had um, really very very good rotisserie chicken. There's also a bakery. Remember now it's sponsored by Nestle. Um, so there's Toll House cookies and ice cream. And one thing that they used to have that unfortunately went away in 2008 that I thought was really really cool was the Nestle Junior Chef area that allowed kids to sort of uh, become mini chefs and make and obviously eat their cookies. The cookie, yeah, the the the, the chef slash artist little area has has disappeared. But in the sunshine seasons, you had 
you know, fresh little salads. You had sushi that you could pick up. It was just, it, it's a very eclectic selection of food. Yeah, I think in Future World, uh, that's the place to go eat. I think it's got the, the widest variety, and uh, I think especially the Asian section, really, really good. I, I really like that, especially for, for lunch. You can also have Absolutely. breakfast there as well, too. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing, too, I, I like about the first floor uh, of this pavilion is even with all of the activity, a lot of people go into Soren and, and whatnot, it's very quiet and it's very soft. And it's a combination, I think, of the colors and the music. And even though there's a lot of tables down there, I think it's it's very somewhat it's somewhat intimate to a certain degree. Um, it, it's very, very casual. Um, I think it's a nice place to unwind. And again, a, a place I really enjoy going for lunch. And it is amazing with the acoustics, you consider how big the space is, the work that had to be done to make sure that it, it did stay quiet, that it wasn't, you know, you're trying to yell over the din of everyone else around you, is amazing. Very true. And uh, when the pavilion opened, I think it really had arguably one of the most unique shopping experiences anywhere. Um, because the shop, it wasn't like a logo store. It wasn't really like a merchandise store to a certain degree. Uh, it was called Broccoli and Company. And lo- it was located right next to the Kitchen Cabaret. And it was themed around that to a certain degree. And they sold, yes, they did sell some Kitchen Cabaret plushes. And there's some, there's some very cool collectibles now that they sold there. Uh, but they sold a lot of kitchenware and little you know, plastic fruits and vegetables and things like that carrying over the theme from Kitchen Cabaret. Yeah, there were magnets that looked like bananas, you know, and real bananas, not the ones from the colander combo. And right. you had aprons. It was, it was a little like kitchen home store. Exactly. Exactly. And when it switched over and became the, the green thumb um, a little bit later on, they took a lot of those kitchen items out. It didn't, there wasn't really any food rocks merchandise. Um, it really was more about. Um, like there was a big I remember the big food pyramid they had inside with lights in it um, they sold again a lot of like the wooden fruits and vegetables they sold um, seeds they sold seeds and plants I remember my wife bringing home like this stalk of something that she was supposed to take home and, and grow um, but it was very much taken from not just the, the musical review show next door but really more so things from the living with the land attraction right it was our way to help the, the gardening and the ecology element, it, you know, gardening in your own house and all these little plants and stuff that you could take home and the tools that had like the spade and stuff like that, that you could, that you could purchase and take home. Right. And now, fortunately, unfortunately, that's closed. Um, it, it did close back in 2004, 2005 when they were doing the renovation to add Soren. Uh, now there is a, a very small Soren logo store. That's there, but really everything is Soren related. It's sort of generic merchandise, not really anything tied to the uh, the living with the land attraction anymore. No, I believe the only thing they have like one small tiny stand of, like you said, the little stalks in a box thing, and that's right. about it. Right. But again, from the very beginning, the one thing this pavilion did and does that none others did, and maybe that's why the guys were so passionate about it, was they had walking tours backstage and on stage. Into the pavilion. Um, it was called the Harvest Tour or Tomorrow's Harvest. And members of, not just cast members, but actually members of the agricultural staff would take you through the greenhouses and actually give you a tour of the greenhouses. And you can see this even now. They have the table set up on the you know, backside of all of the display plants out in 
the living with the land tour or listen to the land tour and you could you could walk through and it was usually somebody who was a horticultural intern uh you know this is grunt work for them you know they'd, they'd rather be in the lab not walking people around but it gives you a totally immersive experience and you get to learn so much more than you do just on the rather long boat tour Absolutely. And the name changed again. It became the Greenhouse Tour in 93. It's now called Behind the Seeds. That changed about 96 or so. And I think this is a great tour, especially because not just because it's educational, because you get to go sort of on stage into an, into the attraction, but because it's something I think that everybody in the family can do. It's not very long. It's very inexpensive. I think it's $12 now for adults, $10 for guests three to nine. Uh, if you're a gardener um, or if like me, you wish you had a green thumb. Um, you get some very up-close looks at, at the greenhouses. Um, you get to uh, talk to these cast members. You get to see and learn about things like the ladybug release and the fish feeding and you know growing a seed in your pocket that you can take home. Lots of great practical tips. Um, and I think for kids, too, I think they would even find it fascinating. Again, like the Mickey-shaped pumpkins and the Mickey-shaped cucumbers. It's a tour that really does have a repeatability factor because because the plants are always changing. There are certain ones that obviously you're going to, you know, messages are going to keep, but it does, it changes, and there are so many interactive pieces to it that would entice children and would keep their interest. And like you said, it's very inexpensive to do, and I don't think enough guests take advantage of it. I agree. I agree. And, and from a practical standpoint, um, you can bring strollers or they'll provide you with strollers. It's wheelchair accessible, so again, it really is open um, to anybody, and I think it's something that you should do. Again, $12 for, I think it's about a 45-minute uh, a or so tour, maybe a half-hour, 45-minute or so tour. Uh, I need to do that again. It's been years since I've done it, so I'm going to try and hit that next time I'm I, down. I guess I've actually been thinking about doing it again in April when I'm down, so it's, it definitely has that repeatability factor. Now you have an excuse for a research trip. There you go. <laughs> so, Like I need an excuse. All right, exactly. Well, you got to explain to your wife, so. That's true, uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but um, let's just quickly talk about, you know, we, we, we hinted to some of the changes that took place in the pavilion, and the biggest one took place in September of 1993. That's when Kraft's 10-year sponsorship agreement ran out, and they decide not to renew. So Disney goes and looking for a, 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 new, a new sponsor, because again, you, you need to still have this this funding um, from an outside source. So they, they strike a 15-year partnership with another food company, and this time it's Nestle. And it goes above and beyond just the sponsorship of the Land Pavilion, but now you're going to see a lot of marketing tie-ins throughout the parks. You'll see Nestle-branded products throughout the parks uh, in a huge deal at the time. Again, you're talking more than $30 million that Nestle invests. Because it's one of those things where you know, it's not the construction you're paying for. You're keeping for paying for the upkeep and any refurbishments that need to be done. And like we said, it's a very big tie. It's almost like when Siemens comes into Spaceship Earth, you know, you start seeing that technology throughout the parks. It's this whole integration of the technologies and products available. Exactly. But but of course, for the thirty million dollars, you know, the first thing Nestle says is we want Kitchen Cabaret out. Um, that is very much a craft. It's got you know the craft feel to it. We want that gone. But what Imaginers do is they're able to sort of repurpose a lot of the equipment and change the sets a little bit. They bring in food rocks. They upgrade some of the technology. They bring in new, again, at the time, more relevant characters like um, Tone Loke, you know, who is, who's food wrapper. Uh, but again, 
conveying that same message of nutrition, now getting away from the four food groups to the food, to the food pyramid, you know, good food, bad food. And, uh, and I love the fact that they have, you know, Peter Gabriel and, and Chubby Checker. Again, Chubby Checker comes in and actually records his own singing pineapple <laughs> song. And that's the thing where with Kitchen Cabaret, you had the homages to these, you know, the Andrews sisters and Carmen Miranda. But here you actually have, you know, Tone Loke doing himself and his character. And you have, uh, you know, Neil Musaka and all these people just working with them to create this show that was very, very entertaining. And again, it appealed to both adults and kids alike. Because remember, too, Epcot early on did not have the reputation of being the most kid-friendly park because they were looking for characters, they were looking for rides, so they needed to do things that were definitely going to have, you know, a fun aspect to it, a humorous, a whimsy, um, and a, a relevant factor, too, for some of the older kids. Um, and there were obviously other changes that, that took place as well. Listen to the land becomes living with the land. The scenes That's inside... didn't listen. So you got... That's because we didn't listen. <laughs> you didn't <laughs> listen. So now you have to live with the land, and the tagline goes away. Uh, and there was a couple of, of notable changes. We talked about the Symphony of the Seed with those giant, uh, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk size plants. And now that's replaced by a storm scene, a, a very powerful scene, I think, uh, to try and convey a message that leads us right into the re- into the um, into the rainforest scene. And then the finale changes a little bit as well. There's um, the images of, of different people from around the world. Their faces are projected on the wall, different farmers really from around the world. And you have even a change in the queue where now you have these quotes from various, you know, authorities on agriculture, world leaders and children, you know, five, eight year old children talking about the world as a whole and where our place is with it. All right. Quick question. Are you a listen to the land guy or a living with the land guy? Oh, I'm a listen to the land guy. We're showing our age. You know that, right? (laughs) I, I, I know. I know. But it's one of those things. That's what you grew up with. That's what you take with you. That's what you carry with you. Exactly. And one other change, too, that was brought about in 2008, um, which was interesting, was that no longer did you have a live cast member narrating your your boat ride as you did from the very beginning now there's a pre-recorded narration that plays over the boat speakers and some people like that some people don't um i always sort of felt that i enjoyed having the live cast member there but again i refer to something like the jungle cruise your cast member sometimes although they were going by a, a script could help make or break to a certain degree um your your boat ride here there's a consistency obviously with the message and and you know, getting it across the right way of having the pre-recorded narration. But you're right with having that person there. You know, there were times where you could ask questions and get answers right then rather than have to go searching for them later. But on the flip side, now people aren't waiting for boats that are going by empty. They can get on the next boat available. Exactly. And, you know, people are saying to yourself, you know, what about that little attraction that they built in 05 called Soren? Uh, <laughs> you know, of course... Soren um, is is huge. It's, it's immensely popular. There is so much, and we haven't really talked about it because honestly, Ryan, Soren warrants its own segment in and of itself. I mean, the only sort of thing that we said about it was that it did replace the location of where Kitchen Cabaret and Food Rocks was. They built an entirely new show building for it, making a big pavilion even bigger. Uh, but this is obviously something that needs to be covered in much more depth um, in its own segment. It definitely calls for it between the technologies and the the visuals and how big it is in scope. I mean, you can see it from just about anywhere in the park now. It's, it definitely has its own place in the history. 
Absolutely. But I, I do want to talk about, you know, sort of wrapping up the pavilion as a whole. Uh, I really enjoy it. Um, uh, keeping Soren out of the mix. Uh, I, I like this pavilion. I think it's unique in so many ways. Um, I, I always enjoyed the boat ride attraction because I enjoyed being able to see the technologies. And, and I enjoy the message that it conveys. It, it's very apparent you know, as you go through, uh, and, and I think they convey it in an interesting way. It's not sort of in a very academic way um, and sort of, I think, holds the interests of, you know, multi-generational people. And going back to even the beginning of Epcot, you know, all the pavilions in Future World have changed, have gone through some kind of major refurbishment since they opened. It, this is the one that has consistently been able to keep its message and give it to you in a way that's not going to bore you and you're still going to take something away with you. I agree. And, it, and I think it's, to a certain degree, it's almost a shame because Soren so much overpowers um, the rest of the pavilion because people do make that dash first thing in the morning to get down there, to get their fast passes, um, sometimes overlooking the living with the land attraction unless maybe they're waiting for their fast pass. And, th- and that's fine. If that gets them on the ride, so be it. Um, but I think even... Circle of Life. Uh, again, I think a lot of people just walk by it or run by it, as the case may be, and they shouldn't. Uh, I think because they, it is a, it's entertaining uh, as well as the, li- the living, I'm, saying, I'm so used to saying listen to the land, the living with the land boat ride. I think it's one of those things where you actually, the earlier your fast pass time is for Soren, the more of that, that experience you get from the land, because if you have an hour, hour and a half to kill, you may not want to venture across the park to go mission space or test track. You may end up grabbing breakfast right there at the Sunshine Season, and you may end up grabbing the boat because the Living with the Land tour, because it's right there and it's a very quick on and off kind of a thing. So it does, it brings that experience back home. Um, but you're right, people are just really running by so much so that they have people that have to walk you into the attraction because they're afraid someone's going to get hurt. Exactly. And look, we say this all the time with anything in Disney the Land Pavilion, no exception. Take your time. After you get your fast pass, fine. Take your time looking around the pavilion. Look at some of the details. Look at the balloons. You know, look at um, some of the, the quotes on the wall over by Living with the Land. And give the attraction a chance if you haven't ridden it before. Uh, because I, I definitely think it's worth it. So, and, and try and sort of get a sense of the message of the pavilion. It does. It offers so much. It really is worth the time. Absolutely. And uh, Ryan, as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, really get an in-depth look at the pavilion. To read more of Ryan's excellent work, head on over to Main Street Gazette. That's Main ST Gazette. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, Check out his blog. He's got a lot of great, great stuff in there, a lot of great details, too, about the park. And uh, thanks again, as always, buddy. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks also to Ryan Wilson from MainStreetGazette.com for his help on the DSI of the Land Pavilion. Again, I know this week's show 
Also, a little bit shorter than usual. No news, again, because I'm in the middle of my move. Had to record a little bit early. For that, I apologize. But like I said last week, I will not miss any episodes while I'm gone. So definitely stay tuned. I will have another show next week. That I can promise you. I'm also going to be uploading a new video to the site. Definitely stay tuned to WDWRadio.com for that. Click on the Videos tab at the top of the page to see all of the videos or get them right in your iTunes feed. I said at the beginning of the show, I do have another update on the Everest Adventurers Weekend. That is September 24th through the 27th, 2009. As you may know, we are renting out the now-closed Adventurers Club for one private dinner and show on Thursday, September 24th. We have special package rates, including rooms with three-night stay, tickets to the dinner, the show, and lots more. Many of you have been emailing me and calling the voicemail asking about tickets only. I am happy to say we are now releasing tickets only for the event. So if you are a DVC member, if you're a local, if you're a cast member, if you have other accommodations, want to just buy tickets to the event, you now can. The tickets are $149 each. That includes the dinner, the event, the show, tax, gratuity, fees, everything else. To find out more or to purchase your tickets, you can click on the link on the homepage of WDWRadio.com or go to MouseFanTravel.com. Remember, too, we also have updated pricing and even better rates, discounted off the rack rate if you do want to get part of the packages. We have rooms at All-Star Movies, Pop Century, Port Orleans Riverside, Beach Club. Those are selling out very, very fast, so if you are interested in getting a room as part of the package, I suggest you try and get that as quickly as possible. And again, if you have any questions, I'll put a link in the show notes this week to the forums. You can post a link in the Everest Adventurers Weekend thread or contact Mouse Fan Travel with any questions you have about either the tickets or the packages. Speaking of questions, don't forget, if you have any questions you want answered on the show, I promise in the next couple of weeks, I am going to get to more of your emails. You can send those to Lou at WDWRadio.com. Or if you want to be heard on the air, you can call the toll-free voicemail at 888-703-2171. As far as upcoming meets of the month in Walt Disney World, not sure about April as yet. I do know that May, I will be there the first weekend. Don't have the exact date, time, and location for the meet yet, but it probably will be that first weekend in May, probably Saturday the 2nd or Sunday the 3rd. Stay tuned for more on that. And if I can pull something together in April, I will definitely let you guys know. I'll also post that on Facebook and Twitter. You guys know, come by, friend me up on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. The links you can find to those right on the homepage of WDWRadio.com. And if you come by Facebook, make sure you join the WDW Radio Show group as well. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, especially thanks to Mouse Fan Travel, Becky and her team, doing a great job helping me put together the Everest Adventurers Weekend. Don't forget, for Celebrations Magazine, go and visit the website at celebrationspress.com. There you can subscribe, purchase back issues. And finally, remember, if you want to talk about the show, come by the forums at wdwradio.com. It's fun. It's free to come by and join, talk about not just the show, anything Disney-related, but more than 31,000 other Disney fans. And, of course, if you like the show... Please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Review us over on iTunes. Come say hi on Facebook. And, uh, of course, my friends, thank you, as always, again, for taking the time and tuning in. You guys have been so great lately, especially about with the move to Florida. I really appreciate all the support. And remember, it's never too late to start following your dream. 
So take the first step now and always, always keep moving forward. Thank you all so much. Again, I really appreciate it. So until next week, see ya. Hey, Lewis, Josh. Uh, you're probably getting used to my calls every single Monday. So um, just thought I'd call you again. And uh, you were talking about park traditions for a family each year. And um, every time we go to Disney World, I've only been there twice, but I still I, I love the place. I mean, it's the greatest. So um, we always stay at the all-star resorts, usually all-star movies. And every time we get there, we always check in, and then we sit down uh, by the Fantasia pool and have a pizza. And uh, that's always very good. And uh, I, I was on your website yesterday, and I looked, and there was something that, uh, well, probably not that many people did it, but uh, the Smuckers and Jif Celebration Achievement Contest. And I had actually entered it uh, six times with six different essays uh, before you even announced that. It was probably at the beginning of February that I found that out. And uh, they'll be announcing the winner soon. So uh, if I do win, which I hope I do, and I know I'm not the only one that hopes, but uh, if I win, I'll call you and tell you, and hopefully I can come to a meet of the month or something. I'll probably go in October. And uh, another thing that I wanted to say was... uh, there are tons of restaurants there at WDW, but uh, my favorite is actually Picos or Pecos Bills, uh, Wild West Cafe in Frontierland. I love that. It's always nice and air-conditioned in there, too. So uh, just a little quick service restaurant, so I thought I'd just call in and tell you all that stuff. Bye. Hi, Lou. Um, love your show. My name is Cassie from Miami. Um I was just calling to talk about, you had mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Virgin Megastore closing down, all the Virgin Megastores closing down, and what should Disney put in that huge space that they have there in downtown Disney? And I posed that question to a bunch of my friends at our local pin meet, and what we came up with was, what was when was the last time you saw a roller rink? And... On top of that, then we, you know, all compounded the idea. How about a totally nostalgic, totally retro, family fun center, roller rink, bowling alley, skee-ball, classic pinball, kind of something in stark contrast to Disney Quest, which is very kind of futuristic, you know, looking forward. How about a family fun center that looks backward? you know, to the past, to the things we used to do to have fun, you know, skating together and bowling and more of those mechanically inclined things, less digital world. Um, Let me know what you think. And, again, I love your show, and thanks so much, and keep it up. Hi, Lou. It's Charlene, Lucy Lou on the board. I just wanted to give you a quick buzz and let you know that um, I am not going to be D23. Um, As you had mentioned, in your conversations and stuff, it's the economy. We're coming down to Disney in June, and my husband and I decided that, you know, we would like to do that, put more money into that than into something like C23. Um, I did buy the first issue. I'm not opening the first issue. I'm going to save the first issue. Um, maybe I'll get one as a surprise, you know, uh, membership or something for my birthday um, in May. I really 
love Disney. Um, I think the price tag was a little high. On um, you know, I'm a working working person, and my husband works and stuff, but I just couldn't see spending the money on that one. Um, thanks for listening, and love the show, and love everything you do with the boards and stuff. So, thanks, guys. Have a good one. Uh, be safe on your move, Lou, and to your family. Bye. Hey, Lou. Uh, I had already called you today, but uh, actually, I just downloaded the uh, Epcot segment of your uh, Daily Disney Diary on my iPod, so I can watch it anytime I want. And uh, I wanted to comment on you, uh, you on Test Track, and uh, the guy making all those sounds and everything. Uh, you sure that wasn't Glenn or Tim or something? You sure? Because I would check again. But um, I wanted to uh, make a comment on that. Uh, I know how you feel. Uh, like we were on the great movie ride, and uh, as soon as the alien dropped down, he started screaming and trying to make his kids laugh and everything. And I mean, it's okay sometimes, but after a few minutes, it can kind of get annoying. So, um, well, bye.